just as you're finding Leviticus 16, let me ask you, have you ever found yourself being exactly where you're meant to be? And not in some mundane sense, uh, in the line at the post office, which is what you were planning, or at work on Monday morning, or doing the school drop-off, or wherever it might be. Not, not in the normal sense of being where you plan to be, but being in the place uh, where everything is so very good, where life is at its fullest, where life is full of joy, uh, where there's nothing missing. Everything you need and more is there. Everything that you love most in the world is there. Have you ever found yourself in a place like that? Let me ask you this place, if you're imagining one in your head right now, would you know it if you saw it? If you stumbled in there all of a sudden one day, would you know that you were there? You may have heard of a man by the name of William Randolph Hearst. He was an American millionaire who uh, his life uh, formed the basis of the movie Citizen Kane. And Hearst, uh, over a period of time, built up a massive newspaper empire in the 1920s. And such were his profits, he got to the point where he didn't know exactly what to do with all the money and he built himself a massive property in California and over time he collected more and more famous antiques and objects of art. No matter what the cost, he put them on his property. And he got to the point where there was almost nothing left for him to buy, nothing that he wanted and then he came across one particular object of art in a magazine and he thought, I must have this one. And so he sent agents all over the world, desperate to track down this item of art. Months and months passed and still no sign. Nobody could find it. And then finally one of the agents came back and said, Mr Hurst, I've found it. You can imagine his joy. And he said, well, I'll pay for it. Whatever it costs, wherever it is, let's get it. He said, Mr Hurst, it's in your warehouse. You bought it ten years ago. Today uh, in Leviticus 16 we come across our greatest treasure this place that we've been talking about, the place that we are meant to be and it's a place we can so very easily take for granted. We will celebrate that place this weekend coming as we celebrate Easter again. That place, the place that the Bible says from the very first page all the way to the end is the place you're meant to be with God in his presence. That's the place you were made for. That's where life is at its fullest and is full of joy. You see, without his presence, the Bible tells us, even life's richest, most rich experience, no matter what it is, will leave you yearning for more. But with him, there is life, the Bible says, and life to the full. We were made to be in his presence. We thrive as men and women when we are in his presence. It is the unappeasable longing he has put in our hearts. We will never be at rest until we are in his presence. So that's what we're going to see here in Leviticus 16. And here's what I love about this chapter. Leviticus 16, with with all its complexity, with all its instructions, all the detail, really at its heart, what it is showing us is God's actions to give us our heart's desire, to allow, allow us to be at one with God, to be in his presence. But before we see this in Leviticus 16, there's something else you need to see. You see, the events that, uh, that spark chapter 16 that are referred to in the first couple of verses, it's important you see them and you need to flick back a couple of chapters to Leviticus 10. Here in Leviticus 10, in the first few verses, you will see what happens when two men do what they were designed to do, enter God's presence. Let me paraphrase the first couple of verses. That same day, Nadab, 
and Abihu, Aaron's sons, took bowls and put hot coals and incense in them and offered them to God, something they had not been asked to do. As they did, fire blazed out from God's presence and consumed them, and they died in God's presence. Here you have two men doing what they were created to do, to enter God's presence, and the moment they do, they're destroyed. Such a different picture, isn't it, to the, to the picture that the overall Bible paints for us of, of being in God's presence as where life and joy is found. Well, here you see it is where fear and death are found. It's a shocking moment, but it's not an isolated one in our world. It is, in fact, according to Hebrews 9, the destiny that lies ahead of everyone who would dare to enter God's presence as they are. Hebrews 9.27, all are destined to die and after that face judgment. That's what happens when you enter God's presence as you are. And you want to see how certain that destiny is. Don't just look at Leviticus 10. See our world. Spend an hour at, at one of the crematoriums of our city and you will see this destiny up close. This uh, Just last Thursday I conducted a funeral across the other side of Sheffield. It, it's not the first funeral I conducted. It's definitely not going to be the last. I should be used to it. But I'm not. Here you see this destiny right up close and it leaves people stunned into silence. There we were, as we should be, as is appropriate, gathered as a group of mourners to say goodbye to one just like us. But it's not a one-off. As the service finished, eventually the mourners left and went their separate ways. But as I came around the corner to head home, there is another group of mourners ready to repeat that same story again half an hour later. Everything about that moment says something is not right. Moments like that shouldn't exist and yet they happen all the time. Let me tell you, there is no moment I feel less human than that one. And so as we turn to Leviticus 16, we see the account of these two men who died in God's presence. It shouldn't surprise us, but it does shock us and it lies ahead of all of us if we would dare to enter God's presence as we are. Because of who we are in ourselves is people unfit for his presence. Even though we are made to be there, even though we long for it, we are not fit to be there. We have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of his glory. Approach God as you are and all that awaits you is death and judgment. And here you start to see the tragedy of our sin. What we most long for, where we should be, we cannot be. And yet the book of Leviticus asks the daring question, could it ever be possible that a sinful people, people like us, unholy like us in so much that we do, could it ever be possible that we could approach God if he is as holy as we see here in this chapter? Well, the foolish answer, the answer our world tells itself, the answer that is the Aussie mantra for life is, she'll be right. She'll be right, mate. Of course you can approach God. He's your mate. You'll be fine. Go for it. Now we only buy that lie when we underestimate who God is or overestimate who we are. Truth is the Lord is holy, completely holy, glorious, perfect, just, good. And you, just like me, are not. 
Rather, we are unholy, broken, unfair, selfish, you name it. Now, hearing this, some may think it it seems unfair, it seems extreme that, that God would have this perfect standard that I have to match up to. That no matter what I do, his verdict on my life is fail. And so what we do is we set our own standards. We say, I'll be the judge, not him. I'll set the standards, not him. And on my standards, I'm doing okay. Better than most anyway. Now if that's you, work your thinking through for a moment. Let's pretend that there is no moral absolutes that that everyone is to be judged by. Let's say instead that around your neck is an invisible tape recorder. And the only thing that this tape recorder picks up as you go through life are the things you say that people ought to do. It picks up the standards you call others to. And you go through life and it picks up these things, your moral standards, your framework for life. If at the end of your life you were to take that tape recorder off and play it back and assess your life by it, there is not a person on the earth that would pass even their own test let alone the tests others may have, the standards others may have, let alone the standards a holy, perfect, righteous God would have. We don't even pass our own test. And so it's not extreme to think that if there is a God who is Lord of all, and there is, who created you, who rules this world with kindness and goodness and purpose, that if you reject his rule and his ways, that he has a right to hold you to account We need to see that approaching God as we are is a foolish move. Don't underestimate who God is. And also don't underestimate or overestimate who you are by thinking that that when it comes to sin that that is all throughout Leviticus 16 that it hasn't affected you, at least not as much as others. Leviticus 16 shows us how pervasive sin is. It is everywhere in this camp all over the people and all over even the places that they dwell. The picture is of sin spreading like some wild virus that can't be contained. We've experienced that uh, as a family on a much smaller scale in recent weeks when our oldest son, Finn, uh, caught the chickenpox a couple of weeks ago. He was immunised in Australia, supposedly unable to get it. Useless immunisation. And now uh, Jamie, our second child, our daughter, has got it. And for the first few days she had it, as more and more spots appeared, she was in denial. So, Jamie, you've got the chicken pox. No, I don't. Jamie, you've got the chicken pox. And eventually more and more of these things appeared and I held her up in front of the mirror. Jamie, you have the chicken pox. We do the same thing with sin. We, we think maybe it affects others. Maybe others are really sinful, but not us. Or at least if I am, I've got maybe one or two spots, but that's it. It spreads like a virus and worst of all, you don't catch it from someone else. It comes from inside, the Bible tells us. Sin can't be avoided. But many of us think we're okay. The truth is we are rent through with it. Not a few spots, we're covered in it. And we are not to think that problem is not serious. You want to see how serious? Well, Leviticus 10 shows you it. Approach God as a sinner and you will die. You see, the great lie that Satan told Eve right at the start of the Bible and he's told everyone since is you will not surely die. But God says, yes, you will. Sin is serious. God is holy and judgment is certain. Listen to this quote by A. Tozer. He says, God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. 
the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly and has become, has become for us the opiate for the conscience of millions. He won't judge while death draws ever nearer. See the tragedy of sin. It cannot be avoided but it must be dealt with. And then see the wonderful provision of this chapter, Leviticus 16. See God's remarkable grace. See how he makes the impossible possible for us to come back to him safely. See the atonement. That's the word that Leviticus 16 uses for the only path, the only safe path back to God. It uses the word some 17 times in this one chapter to make sure we don't miss it. It shows us how sin can be atoned for, how we can be at one with God. That's what it means. And really there are three things that make it possible. A servant, a sacrifice and a scapegoat. Firstly, a servant. Atonement, uh, becoming one with God requires one single servant, only one. And we're told in this chapter it is Aaron, the high priest. If you look at verses 3 to 5, you see the instructions this one servant was to fulfil. And in a moment we'll get to what he brings with him and what he is to do, but first have a look at what he's wearing. In verse 4, a simple linen tunic. Now the normal clothes of the high priest were incredible. He stood out for miles. He, he, he looked like a king amongst the people. Incredibly specially made clothes, fine embroidery, covered in jewels and gold. He looked so impressive. But on this day he was simply to enter God's presence as a servant. It's the appropriate attire of anyone who would enter God's presence. Even, we're told in Ezekiel, even the angels wear simple tunics like this. Everyone is a servant before God. Before God, all our status in this world is stripped away. All are equal servants. So that's what he is to wear. But then there is his sacrifice. Firstly, we're told in verse 11, he is to sacrifice to make atonement for his own sins. Before he can even get to the sins of the people, he has his own sin to deal with. And so verse 11 says, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. And then in verse 14 it says, he is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. First he has to deal with his own sin and then we're told he has to deal with the sin of the people through this sacrifice. We're told in the, in the chapter he is to take two goats. One is to be set aside for what we will see in a minute, but one is to be sacrificed for the sins of this people. Now at other times when sacrifices for sins were made, day in, day out for this people, they were made just on the edge of this tent that is described here for us, the tent where God himself dwelt with his people. But on this one day of the year, sin would properly be atoned for. This one man would go right into the heart of this tent. We're told to the most holy place. Right into the heart of things. Right to the atonement cover, we're told, where elsewhere in the Bible is described as the very throne of God. He has to walk right up to God's throne to offer this sacrifice. We're told he is to enter with great care. This is no simple job. To protect himself, we're told in verse 13, he has to burn incense so he won't look at God 
or else he will surely die. But on this day he is a miracle man. Where others have entered and been destroyed, he goes in, riding to make atonement. And how? Well, it's hard to miss, isn't it? Blood. The blood is everywhere in this chapter. And again, like last week, when we looked at the Passover, we see that the blood is key for the forgiveness of sins. Just one chapter later in Leviticus 17, we are told this blood spilt here stands for death. A life taken, a payment taken. This is the punishment a sinful life deserves. And so as Aaron slaughtered a bull for himself and a goat for the people, it was God declaring, I am taking payment for sin. But here's the wonder of God's provision. His atonement. It is one death for many. One life for the life of a whole community. Can you picture the scene? As the people looked on and they saw Aaron slaughter this goat. As the blood began to flow and as he dipped his fingers in it, ready to sprinkle it, they would know how serious their sin was, how holy God is. A death had happened in their place. We need to picture that scene. This, this camp on, on the Sinai Peninsula on this particular day when the whole community is gathered round this tent watching as this one man goes about his task, taking off his robes, washing himself, putting on the clothes of a servant and then the sacrifice. As he walks in through the tent entrance, as they see him disappear where none of the others can go, can you imagine the suspense? Not the sort of suspense like we have in a, a movie thriller where you're wondering what's going to happen next. This is the sort of suspense when your whole life hangs in the balance. Watching the tent entrance, hoping. Then imagine the sheer relief as Aaron's head pops back out. Huge grin on his face, arms raised, sacrifice accepted. That's the moment, isn't it? That's the moment when all Israel can breathe again. The moment when they know sins have been forgiven. The debt paid in full. And if you want to see how decisive that forgiveness is, see what Aaron has to do next with the other goat, the scapegoat. Have a look at verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the sins of the people and put them on the goat's head. And then he shall send the goat away into the desert. Again, can you picture the scene? What a moment. Aaron places his hands on this goat's head and slowly confesses the sin, not just of him, not just of his family, but the whole people. All the sin was laid on this one goat Imagine that. Take our pride, our lies, our idols, our hatred, our conflict, our sexual brokenness, our harsh words, our gossip. Take it all and take it far away, never to return. This man was to take the goat into the wilderness to literally a cut-off place, the sort of place you don't come back from. The tradition says that what they would do is they would take him up onto a high mountain and they would push the goat off It's a picture of what God has done with their sin as far as the east is from the west. That's how far the sin has gone away. Never to come back. Imagine what a wonderful day the atonement day was for this people. There's a problem. Have a look at verse 34. 
As good as this day was, it was so short-lived. One year later, they would have to repeat it all again, year after year after year. I mean, surely over the years in Israel, I would have started to ask questions. How can a goat pay for my life? How can the goat's blood really deal with the things I've done, things that I struggle to forgive myself for, let alone others, let alone a holy God? And what happens the day after the Day of Atonement when racing across the desert towards the camp is the goat with my sin? What then? What can one servant, one sacrifice, one scapegoat really change when the problem is so big and God is so holy? Well, behold your Saviour. Behold the reality that is behind the shadow here in Leviticus 16 because this is just a picture, just a hint just a whisper of what God had planned from the basement of time, his plan to really once and for all atone for sins. Behold the real day of atonement, Good Friday, when God dealt not just with the sins of a nation but of the whole world. Did you hear in our, in our other reading in Hebrews 7, everything that we see in Leviticus captured for us in just two verses? See what you are in on as a Christian. See your high priest. This is what it says. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, unlike people like Aaron, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself See Jesus. See the staggering contrast between Leviticus and Hebrews and the wonderful assurances it gives you as a Christian. Aaron had to strip off his kingly robes because the truth is before God he's just like us, a sinner. Jesus was in very nature God, king, rightfully king, not just in what he wore, in who he was. He is the one for whom, by whom and through whom all things hold together. And yet he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He became man and became obedient, even to death on a cross. Aaron was a sinner who needed to atone for his own sin before the people. Jesus was, well you saw it there in Hebrews 7, holy, blameless, set apart. He had no sin of his own, just ours. Aaron sacrificed again and again and again, year after year. Jesus offered once and for all. Aaron offered the blood of bulls and goats, which however good, could never take away sin, Hebrews tells us. Jesus offers himself, and we're told in Hebrews, achieved eternal redemption, not just for a day, not just for a year, but forever. God says, as he does on that first Good Friday, it is finished. The price paid. So behold your day of atonement, The day God made a way for us to come home to him safely. A day that should thrill you and humble you and fill you with a joy that nothing in this world can take away. And as we close, let me finish by taking us back to where we started. The whole idea of approaching God. Back in verse 2 of our chapter, we're told that we are not free to approach God whenever we like. But here you see the difference Jesus makes. With him everything has changed. You are free. Free from fear. 
Hebrews 10 says you have confidence, even boldness to enter the most holy place any time you like with no fear. Jesus has set you free from that, even from the fear of death. No more. You are free to do something that that those on that hillside, that first atonement day, would have never imagined possible. Free to enter his presence. You can bombard his throne with prayer as we have this morning. You can fill his ears with praise. You can live a life of joy knowing that there is coming a day when you will be with him forever. Free from fear. But not only that, free from guilt. Hebrews 10 says that even our consciences have been washed by his blood. God has placed his hands not on a goat but on his own son and he's placed our sin on his head and he has gone up that hill, a solitary figure, to take our sin where it can never come back from. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has taken our sin away. God will never bring it up again. Those who come to him in repentance and faith, their sin is gone. The devil cannot condemn me, although he will try. Others cannot judge me for it because it's been paid in full. Even my conscience is washed. I think guilt drives many people and the way they live and the decisions they make. We can so easily be weighed down by guilt, whether it's perceived failures or even very real ones. Those known by others and even those that we keep hidden. God says to you in Christ, confess it. Hand it over to Jesus and he will take it away where it can never come back from, his cross. And so behold the day of atonement, the day he took your place and the day he took your sins away. Let me ask you what I asked in the beginning. Have you ever found yourself being exactly where you're meant to be? Where everything is so good in the deepest sense of the word? Remember William Hurst? His great treasure was there right in front of him. Our danger is not realising what we are in on as Christians. There is a real danger as we come to Good Friday, another Easter just passes us by, another holiday. Forgetting what we are in on, forgetting what Jesus' blood has done, forgetting that you are safe in God's presence. And if you're not a Christian today, if you've not come to trust in this sacrifice on your behalf, you too may make the mistake William Hurst made of always searching for something else, always looking for something that will ease your fears or even assuage your guilt, whether it be the next relationship or the healthy bank balance or the career or the family or the value-adding renovations, whatever it might be. This is the place you're meant to look. This is the place you're meant to be. And it's right in front of you. See Jesus. Let's pray.